This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I hope to um, make the point this evening that health equity really requires transformational change. And I'm going to talk a little bit about transformational change effectively in action um, as an example of the path that I think we need to follow to get to exactly where we need to go and where I think we aspire to be. So I want to just start by introducing our Community Advisory Board Chair, Baba Arnold Perkins. He'll be giving the talk with me today (laughs) virtually. Um, and you'll see some of his messages, which have inspired the work that um, that I've been able to do here at UCSF over the past uh, three years. One of the first things that that uh, Barbara Arnold uh, mentioned to me or brought up to me in 2020, beside the fact that our community advisory board turned 15 in that year, is that it was also the 400th year Uh, anniversary of the enslavement of black people. And why does that really matter? Why is that really captivating and poignant right now as we're working toward health equity? It's because that institution of slavery really drove home and kind of provided a foundation for a status for African American people in this country as others. Um, Toni Morrison wrote this great little book called The Origin of Others, and um, in it there's a really stark description of how African American people um, in this country uh, have come to take the place that they have in sort of the social strata. Um, And the first thing that I I think I need to point out and remind people is that we are unique as African American people in this country because we are not immigrants. So our presence here was not necessarily um, by choice. Uh, And because of that, there is a history that is ongoing that plays out over and over, and it is a history of displacement and separation. But then there's also this concept of otherization that really had to come into being in order to justify slavery, in order to make it okay that some people were working effectively for free and and being in the process subjugated um, uh, uh, in the society. So one of the passages that um, that that Toni Morrison writes really reflects on how medicine sort of codified that otherization. Um, and and justified slavery, in part by saying, and she quotes from some writings uh, of the uh, late 1800s, that the forced exercise, which was so beneficial to the Negro, is expended in cultivating cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco, which but for his labor would go uncultivated, and their products would be lost to the world. So both parties are benefited the Negro as well as his master. And further, from the report on the diseases and physical peculiarities of the Negro race from 1851, the medical society really believed that Negroes can only have their intellectual faculties awakened to a sufficient degree to receive moral culture when under the compulsory authority of the white man. And so this was a way in which people could feel okay about being slave owners or about the institution of slavery because in some way there was a perception that that was providing help or support um, to a group of people who were effectively less than. 
and again, this was medicalized and codified over and over. To add insult to injury as we move into thinking about how do we get people engaged with battling the pandemic, um, you know, I'm sure that, that in all discussions, this idea of the Tuskegee experiment comes up over and over. And I think most people are familiar with the, the general contours of the experiment. But, you know, the reality is it was meant, it was designed initially to go on for six months. It went on for, for uh, 40 years. Um, and I think most importantly, the piece that is sort of left out and forgotten is that the Center for Disease Control, which was called the Communicable Diseases Center, was founded in 1946-1947, and the three diseases around which it was founded were malaria, tuberculosis, and syphilis. So, in effect, our public health infrastructure was developed on the basis of the subjugation of black people. So the public health has never appeared to be by or for um, black people, but rather to understand diseases to protect those who held a more important social status from those diseases. So this creates two problems. The first is the what I just mentioned about our public health infrastructure not really seeming to be for black people. The second is what that creates over time and what the position of being other creates over time. So as the other in medicine and public health, nothing is designed or developed specifically for you as the other. So when something is advanced as being for you, for example, COVID testing, vaccination, there will be suspicion simply because it is historically out of the ordinary for anything to be specifically for you as the other. And unfortunately, in these kinds of contexts and environments, misinformation and disinformation, which has been rampant throughout the pandemic, are more acceptable because they reinforce the suspicion um, that is based on historical fact. So I want to have that uh, lay that as the groundwork for how we think about what was happening in the pandemic for African-American people with COVID. Um, and when we were first asked to come over to uh, Alameda County to help out, um, actually in another community, but we were already working in East, deep East Oakland, we looked at some of these heat maps that show where the cases of COVID were really high. And what you can see is in the upper map, in the darker colors, you can see that the cases are really high in zip codes 94621, 94603, um, slightly darkened in 94605, uh, as well as in 94601, which really is another type of neighborhood that is not really African-American focused. But when you look at the lower map and you ask the question, where was testing um, actually being taken up? you see in the heat map that testing was being taken up in the zip codes that were largely um, showing lower rates of COVID infection. So up in the top left corner, 94607-612610, um, these are more affluent neighborhoods in Oakland where the rates of COVID were low, but the testing was high. And this was all despite the fact that Roots Clinic, which was the first community health center to really open up low barrier testing, um, and, and primarily serves African-American patients, really opened their doors, hoping that their normal patient population would come in for testing. But instead, what happened was you saw people from 94607, 94612, 94610 going into Deep East Oakland to get tested. 
but you didn't see it taken up so much by the African-American community. And we wanted to see how we could rectify this problem. So one of the things that really inspires me um, that, that Arnold say, he's got such great sayings, but one of them is you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you won't go. And he's effectively talking about how we conduct ourselves in academia. Whether we think we know everything or not, when we get out into the community, the reality is we're going to learn so much more about the lives that people are living that we may not be privy to, we may only see the top line data about. So it was important to get out of the institution and really be in the community. So we started by partnering with organizations that Arnold could lead us to. The Friends of Dr. Frank Staggers are a subgroup of our uh, men's health committee um, for the uh, uh, Cancer Center Community Advisory Board. The Brotherhood of Elders Network was started by Baba Arnold Perkins, and they led us to the Oakland Frontline Healers, who led us to the local providers who were caring about this issue at the time, local officials who could help clear the way for us to start to set up testing, the faith-based organizations who, who were hesitant to get involved at all with any COVID testing initially until they saw what community could do together, and then a number of community-based organizations, and of course, all supported on the, the infrastructure of the healthcare delivery system. So UCSF, the federally qualified health centers, and the public health department. We've continued to grow over time. We're now working with the Oakland Unified School District, Marcus Foster Education Institute, more faith-based organizations, more community-based organizations and partners, and the fire department. Um, and so this is what Umoja Health is currently looking like. And Umoja means unity in Swahili. And the idea is the oneness, that we have a singular focus and that we're trying to take care of the um, and elevate the health and wellness of the African-American community during the pandemic. So we needed data in order to get to the right places. So we asked the public health department to give us a heat map, show us where the African-American people live, because remember I mentioned that there's a history of dispersal and separation. And so what you can see on this heat map is where the colors are dark, that's where there are over 40% African-American residents in Alameda County. Um, and, and we don't have a central place where the immigrants live, for example. So again, you have this idea of dispersal. So then we asked our community partners, where will African-American people normally be gathering? Because that's where we should go. And that's what you see in the green dots on the map. So we targeted places that were densely populated with African-American residents and places where they would socially gather. We had our teams go out in our uh, logoed t-shirts, passing out information and getting people mobilized to come to our sites. And the flyers that they used were designed by and for the community, obviously with Afrocentric colors, um, to really speak loudly and clearly that the service that was going to be provided was by and for the community. And just by way of, of how we did when we compared our results to the local clinics that traditionally served African-American people, we looked at the percentage of black people that we reached with our pop-up style, which was really the first pop-up um, COVID testing or any kind of service that was delivered in Alameda County. You can see that we nearly doubled or tripled uh, the proportion of African-American people who were even using Roots Clinic, again, where their regular patient population is 80% African-American, as well as West Oakland Health Center, um, which is, has a similar patient profile. We also were able to engage a high proportion of African-American people who were first-time testers, and this was early in the pandemic. 
mid-pandemic, I guess, late fall. Um, And so there were still a high proportion of folks who had not even engaged and didn't want to talk about it. But we started to shift that. And what came out of it, and I, I just will add, and this is a slide I don't have, but the public health department showed us at the end of 2020 that African-American people had become the highest uh, proportion of testers in the county. So it wasn't just the people that we had reached on the ground at our testing sites, but our weekly meeting that attracted people from across the county, different organizations, as I just showed you, the coalition, um, we started to influence how the African-American community was feeling about COVID-19 testing um, across the county. But what emerged from this storyline is this kind of odd thing that we hadn't been talking about because everybody was talking about the problem for black and brown communities and conflating them as if the problems were exactly the same. And what you can see here is that in terms of the cases or the infection, uh, the infection rates um, in Alameda County, it was much higher in the Latino community than it was in the African-American community. But what we also came to understand as we began to uh, have this dialogue between the community and the public health department, the people who hold the data, we started to ask, well, who's dying? And what you can see here is a complete reversal of those two roles. So the case fatality rate or the chances effectively that you will die if you got COVID for African-American people in Alameda County was dramatically higher than for the group that we all knew was suffering from the highest rates of infection. And this is important because as vaccines rolled out, what we know about the vaccines is that they're meant to prevent severe COVID and death. So in some ways, the vaccine really is for the story of black people in terms of the epidemiology and distribution and behavior of COVID in that community. But nonetheless, in January, before vaccines rolled out, um, this is what I told a reporter who was writing a story for The New Yorker. Effectively, I pointed out that we were going to have the same challenges distributing the vaccine as we had with testing, um, because we have this perception that if we just build it, people will come. Um, If we're nice, it'll be okay. But really what we discovered in that period of doing pop-ups and getting people engaged in the conversation around testing is that we need to meet people where they are. And not just physically, but psychologically and um, be ready to be in dialogue with people over the long term. Because ultimately trust builds at the pace of the relationship. And I just want people to think about this not as um, advice about how we deal with, with health equity or disparities, but think about it in your own life. The people that you've known a long time, that you've gone through trials and tribulations with, and you've made it through hard times, you've had good times together, there's so much more trust there. So when something goes wrong, you have a foundation to sort of say, well, something went wrong, but I think we can explore. It doesn't necessarily mean it's nefarious. The problem is for the medical institution and establishment, public health and African-American people, if we ask ourselves, what is the relationship that we have? If we say, well, it's not that good, then we really shouldn't expect to have a whole bunch of trust. But because of um, our work of getting out there, of really representing like who was working at the site, it was your neighbor, it was somebody from your church, it were people that you knew, um, I think we were able to engender a fair amount of trust. So when we first started asking 
um, our participants at our pop-up sites if they were uh, willing to take the vaccine. You can see the African-American rate of responding yes was much lower than everyone else. But when we compared that to the national average, we were actually much higher than the national average based on this pupil. And then when we came back after a break from in the fall and winter, uh, we came back in January, so these numbers are small, but what we could see was that there was a growth in the folks who were coming to test with us, which by the way, suddenly all the African-American people were repeat testers, not new testers. Um, and that was, again, much higher than uh, what Press Ganey was finding at that same time period um, on a national basis. And based on this, the Alameda County Public Health Department gave us, as a community coalition, our own allocation of vaccine doses. So we set out again to do what we had done with testing in terms of making sure that our efforts really reached the target community. We serve whomever shows up at our site, but we wanted to make sure that we were reaching the African-American community. And this slide here is just reinforcing this idea that we had gained some trust because we also did ask people, would you be willing to participate in research? And as you can see, the folks who said yes more often were the African-American participants, which I think surprised everybody. So once we got our vaccine allocation, we continued with our, our strategy of listening to the community to ask, where should we go? Who do we need to mobilize? Who do we need to talk to? Who needs to show up at these sites and be the face of what we were doing? And what you can see is that we have uh, vaccinated now nearly 4,000 people. Um, and for the fact that we are not a clinic and that we are volunteer run and we're out a couple of days a week, um, we're doing somewhere around 100 or so doses per week. We've added a call team because we, we knew that we had to change everything that we did to really meet, again, people where they were. So when you come to our sites, you don't have to deal with a computer. We do all that for you. Um, you don't have to have an appointment. Uh, we welcome whoever comes up on our site. And then for your second dose, we make sure that you get a phone call from a real human being to let you know your, your second dose is coming up. If you're not able to, to um, make it to that appointment, then we schedule you uh, somewhere else, um, either on a county site or with us. And, uh, and toward the last several months, I guess since April, we've been doing home visits with a van. So we're just trying to make it as, as easy as possible. And because of that, we have uh, the highest second dose rate in the county. So um, I think, you know, there are other community-based efforts that have maybe bigger numbers, more people vaccinated. And I think what I would really emphasize is this is not about how many people that we were able to get vaccinated or to get tested, but it was actually about the impact that we've had on the community in Alameda County. So in August, um, we celebrated our one-year anniversary of meeting every single week, <laughs> um, having upwards of 40 to 50 people on all the meetings from these different organizations. Um, so we met together to celebrate our one-year anniversary, and the mayor of Oakland came out and declared um, August 7th Moja Health Day. But beyond that, our impact is, I think, going to be felt have more of a ripple effect into the future because we're also paying attention to the fact that one of the issues that people kept bringing up was like, we didn't have the right voices at the table to message around this pandemic. And so we've started the Emoja Health uh, workforce. 
And I'm going to tell you a little bit about them briefly. So we've got three different little programs that sort of coalesced around Emoja Health. We have first we had the summer students program, which is associated with Children's Hospital Oakland. It was in its 40th year, um, and we were asked to take on an intern, and we're able to partner her with some of our um, federally qualified health centers to help her get. Um, some research done on her interest, which was depression in low-income women during the pandemic. Uh, we were also funded by Life Sciences Cares to um, to sort of hold and take care of uh, five young college students um, from freshmen all the way to seniors who will have multiple opportunities uh, to work in the Life Sciences Cares industry as well as um, been assigned a mentor. Um, and then getting some direct instruction around structural racism and kind of helping them understand what you will face as you move into medicine and healthcare. Because if you don't understand the system, then you won't have the tools to dismantle. And then finally, we have partnered with the Alameda County Public Health Department and have embedded um, the Emoja Health Youth Mobilizers crew. Um, and what they're doing is running our social media accounts, creating content, um, and they're out at events, and they came on uh, around the time when uh, the approval for 12 to 12 and up um, for vaccination came about. So they created surveys, they deployed their own surveys, and now because they have been so visible, um, we are about to merge with another youth mobilization crew from the Roots Clinic. Um, so that we have a bigger voice and more reach. And so we're creating our own digital army to combat disinformation online. Um, and we're letting the youth voices lead the way because these guys are the ones who are going to inherit um, this future that is being created here in part by COVID. And then finally, we've expanded across the Bay Area. So now um, beyond the town, as we call Oakland, uh, we have Emoja Health San Mateo. They've been meeting for about eight months. In the, mostly in the South County, East Palo Alto, um, North Fair Oaks, and Bell Haven. North County has just requested that we expand, and so the North County meeting is going to start kicking off uh, later this week. And then we've moved back into San Francisco, um, and we've been meeting for about three months. We've mostly been do doing roving uh, vaccinations out in some of the uh, trailer encampments in Bayview Hunters Point. Um, and we're partnering with some of the local African-American churches, particularly around boosters, since the elders are going to be the first group to get it. And we do have the little uh, mobile, uh, which allows us to do home visits and carry all of our tents. We do everything outside. So um, we come completely um, uh, uh, self-contained and ready to provide service. What you can see in the Emoja San Mateo picture, I think is really important because that group primarily focuses on mobilization. They've knocked on over 16,000 doors and it's largely been done um, by youth leaders. And then finally, I think what we have, um, what we have really demonstrated is how much work can be done outside even during the pandemic and how we can start to think about getting people back on track for screening because we know the same populations that faced uh, disparities during COVID are the same populations who are going to face the disparities that result from the decrease in screening that has occurred during the course of the pandemic. So now we take our inflatable colon out. Um, we'll be partnering with the San Francisco Housing Authority to work in some of the low-income housing units to get people 
screened and raise awareness about the importance of screening and early detection for a number of different cancers. We use our weekly meeting to advertise any events that are going on. So we're starting to infuse other health issues into this um, this convening that I think we have so successfully been able to um, to achieve and to get people trained into this idea that you can tune in and there's going to be kind of a weekly update on whatever the health issue is. Um, and I think that this is the new model of meeting people where they are in the gap between healthcare and public health. And and the reason that it works, I think, is because it's there's a transformational emphasis on cultivating an ongoing relationship. We usually only reach to community when we need something. We need you to get vaccinated. We need you to get tested. We need you to be in a clinical trial. We need you to be on an on a research study. And what we do in the Office of Community Engagement in the Cancer Center is year-round non-transactional community engagement. And that's how we as a cancer center find ourselves doing a whole bunch of COVID work because that's what our community was asking for when the pandemic hit. And then we center the community in the process. So we're not really looking to publish a whole bunch of papers. We're actually almost intentionally and deliberately setting aside the academic agenda and centering the community agenda. Um, We are unapologetically committed to whatever community, and I have to say whatever community now because San Mateo's really focused on the Pacific Islander and Latino community. Um, where some of these issues look very similar. So it's either the the African-American community for the original Emoja or the hyper-local approach. Um, and it's intentionally designed for us by us, which means that the the community is embedded in the process of providing service. They're not just doing what people call outreach. They're also in the process of registering people, answering questions. And why are they able to answer those questions? Because they participate on the meetings on a weekly basis. So they get to ask their questions to the public health department, local health experts, and then everybody gets the answers. That gets incorporated into the normal conversation that goes on um, in people's homes, in places where we would otherwise not be reaching them. And then finally, um, to emphasize the weekly meetings, we share back the data from the pop-up event or any events that we've done the week before. We provide, we provide room for folks to make a critique, to um, tweak what we're doing, and to, to um, improve the process. So really, all of the education is through participation, and there's a deep investment and a buy-in in our success by the community. So um, that, I think, adds this layer of inclusion that we sort of try to do in a way that sometimes is checking a box. This is organic. This is what the community is focused on. It's what they want to talk about. That's where we're going with them. And I think this is the transformational change that is needed in order to get to health equity. Thank you. I titled this um, Reflecting on COVID Disparities and uh, just want to a little bit um, sort of tell the quick story of, of some of the things that, that working during this pandemic has, uh, has made me have to think more deeply uh, about. Um, I wanna start with this slide, which is of course out of date because we now have over almost 750,000 deaths. Um, but this slide was, um, um, shows an illustration that was published in the Washington Post that I found very useful, perhaps because I grew up on the East Coast. 
But essentially, it's really hard for us to comprehend such large numbers. And when you look at, uh, and what they did is to say, you know what, if you had school buses, each one of which carried 50 people, you would need a caravan of, of 9,800 buses to carry 500,000 people. And uh, bumper to bumper, that would stretch for 94 miles or the distance between Philadelphia and New York. And of course, now with over 200,000 additional uh, uh, deaths, we are way uh, past the borders of Connecticut. In other words, this is an extraordinary number of people. Another way to um, look at this is, um, is to, a more traditional way in medicine is to look at life expectancy. And what this shows is life expectancy growing uh, nicely um, for the general population between 1980 and uh, 2020, very long standing, quite horrendous uh, health disparities in, uh, disparities in life uh, uh, expectancy. And then when we hit the pandemic, the Latino uh, life expectancy drops by, three, by over uh, three years and black life expectancy drops by 2.5 years, and even the life expectancy in the general population drops. It is extremely difficult to, um, to uh, drop life expectancy. I read in one paper that if one uh, were to eliminate breast cancer, um, that would only, all of breast cancer, that would only uh, move life expectancy by about three months. So it gives you the sense to drop life expectancy by these amounts, this is a, a, simply, a simply horrendous amount of, of death. So this is California data. Um, uh, I took this from the end of September. It's exactly the same now, where these are the number of cases. And these dark lines indicate the percentage uh, of, the, of each population group in the state population. And what you see here is that, um, the, that um, for many population groups like Asian Americans and whites, the percent of confirmed cases was lower than their proportionality in the population. For African-Americans, it was about the same. And for Latinos, it was much higher. In California, the, uh, the case, cases, as Dr. Rhodes have said, have really been focused in the Latino community, as have deaths. So again, uh, a little bit uh, lower rates of deaths in some population, uh, African black death uh, rate about the seven percent. That is the uh, general. That is the number in the population. And for Latinos, exceeding way exceeding the percentage in the general population. So, in addition, we've had uh, we we see um, very pronounced patterns in in uh, in COVID cases. What this shows is COVID cases um, by uh, median annual household income. And what you're seeing here is remarkable um, for uh, uh, that we see much higher number of cases in the uh, lower uh, household income bracket, but also how extraordinarily linear this relationship is, that as household income uh, goes up, uh, the case rate uh, comes down. And here we see a similar a linear relationship between the percentage in the community that live in crowded housing, or here, the percentage in the community without uh, health insurance. And all of which was, is to show what is now, I think, widely known, which is that uh, COVID uh, cases follow um, social, mar social marginalization, follow social injustice, um, and in which uh, 
particularly uh, with respect um, to indices of poverty. In this analysis done by some of our colleagues at the uh, Department of Epidemiology, they looked at death certificate case and they saw that in the first six months of the pandemic, and that's when you know, we really didn't really know what we were doing and there were many cases, particularly in nursing homes and in other congregate uh, living situations. What, we found, what they found is that two thirds of the, of the uh, excess deaths in California early on occurred in people without a high school degree, high school degree or less. And really uh, a tremendous uh, um, concentration of, of death in folks with a lower uh, educational uh, level. For me, this story became pretty clear by, oh, certainly by the third or fourth week of March, when I got a call from one of my colleagues who had volunteered to take extra call in our clinic to cover, um, to be able to inform patients about their COVID tests. And she called and said, Alicia, I need, you need to know something. Of the 10 positive cases that we've had in the last few days, all 10 were in monolingual Spanish-speaking patients. And what we saw in the outpatient circuit uh, 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 arena was clear, clear, quickly became evident in the inpatient uh, arena as well, because by April, 80% of the patients hospitalized at San Francisco General were immigrant Latinos. Typically, it's about 30% of patients. That said, depending on how you look at it, San Francisco had in certain ways, a slow response to recognizing that the pandemic in San Francisco is a pandemic of immigrant Latinos. And that really has been something that I think has not been said as clearly as I've stated it now. And yet that is so clearly what the data show. And in fact, when you look at it this way, um, these are is a case, case rates uh, through the end of September with the darker color showing uh, uh, higher case rates per 10,000 uh, inhabitants. And you can see how cases were concentrated in really the um, east and south side uh, of, of the city. And that would lead us to say things, particularly uh, for folks more looking out the window uh, out where in, in perhaps out near uh, our medical school, or, or so on, would look out the window and say San Francisco is doing great, less than 1% positivity rate. And if you looked out the window because you were sitting at San Francisco General, you would say San Francisco is having a terrible time. We're looking at five, six, 8% positivity rate. So one of the things that quickly became clear to me is that the way that uh, my colleagues, my Latino colleagues, faculty and staff and students experienced the pandemic very early on last year was different. That as the hospital started to fill up with people named Fernandez, Gonzalez, Gomez, et cetera, et cetera um, for us, it felt very personal that the pandemic somehow was some almost um, strategically um, focused on this population. And one of the things, and that made me really reflect, I thought that I've always taken everything in medicine quite personally, I've always been very personally involved. I've been a, a physician for over 20 years and, 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 and have loved it. Um, and yet there was nothing quite like this impact uh, for many of the Latinos uh, uh, at UCSF. And it really, to me, reflected that part of the story that will come to be told is the story of diversity in at, an academic medical center and, um, and why uh, we have such uh, faculty from diverse backgrounds um, 
as well as staff and students doing this work. Let me shift now and tell you about something else that started to, that really affected my thinking. And that was in April, again, of last year, when some of my colleagues from the HIV division at San Francisco General undertook um, a series of studies. And what they did was that they went to one census tract within the mission, um, very you know, not, uh, densely populated, only a few blocks wide, may, uh, maybe four or five blocks long, 4,087 adults, uh, as you know, historically a Latino neighborhood, rapidly gentrifying, still in, this, in these blocks about 58% Latinx, and still with a, a, lot, a, a, a number of poor people, 34% had a household income under 50,000. And what they did is they said, listen, we know the denominator, we know the characteristics of this neighborhood from the census data. And what we're going to do is over the course of four days, try to test everyone uh, within there in order to determine the true prevalence of uh, COVID infection in this area. And that's what they did. And this shows who they tested. Um, they tested about 3,000 people, so not quite everyone, but a nice uh, representative. Uh, they tested slightly more men than women. Uh, it was an ethnically highly diverse group of people, predominantly white and Latino, but diverse group of people who were tested. And what they found that is that the people who tested positive over that course of that weekend were more likely to be men than women, um, which is something that's been found uh, everywhere until you get to around the college age, uh, reflecting uh, men's uh, great, perhaps great men's greater exposure and high risk uh, uh, occupations. But however, the diversity of the testing population was very uh, not seen in the uh, in the population that tested positive. Everyone except for one person who was a Filipino man who tested positive was uh, 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 Latinx. And here again, we see something very interesting. This, uh, we see that um, how um, this virus, it, it taught me a few things. One, it taught me that the virus was really spread along social networks. At this point, we still had questions about how infectious are if you go into a grocery store and there's someone else in the grocery store who tests positive, are you going to test positive? If you touch the same things, are you going to test positive? And what this showed is that these people all live um, cheek to jowl in the mission. They share the same grocery stores, they share the same sidewalks, and yet the and yet COVID positivity was clearly segregated and clearly being um, spread along the lines of um, prolonged social interaction. And so that was excellent to learn about in terms of COVID, but it also made me uh, reflect how deeply, again, how, how much one always has to uh, learn is how, how our segregation um, goes even beyond place um, into uh, so much of how uh, we uh, socialize uh, separately, uh, work separately uh, and play separately, even when we live uh, together. We um, were um, really um, inspired by the work of our colleagues in the mission. And um, particularly because that study was also one of the first studies to show that people who, um, that the people who were sick, uh, who, who were tested positive, they weren't necessarily sick, but the people who tested positive were, were people who uh, worked outside the home 
or someone in their house worked out the outside the home and really um, uh, laid out very clearly how much occupation, how, how much uh, uh, inability to shelter in place was uh, a risk factor. So uh, in response to uh, community calls uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, the East Bay, um, we were fortunate enough to participate in a, a similar sort of test and respond event. Our goal was not to test everyone in a given, in a given uh, zip code as much as it was to provide uh, testing uh, for anyone who wanted it. And we did that in Fruitvale, which is uh, uh, here in, uh, in uh, Oakland. It is like the mission, historically Latinx neighborhood that is rapidly gentrifying. It is still 50% Latino. And it was one of Oakland's hardest hit um, uh, uh, areas with respect uh, to uh, COVID cases. And just as Dr. Rhodes showed, we were fortunate to work in a, with a very broad uh, coalition of community groups, as well as local uh, health providers through La Clinica de Reza, which is an extraordinary network of uh, federally qualified health centers, as well as the departments of public health and, uh, uh, and other UCSF um, uh, groups. And well, as people came in to be tested, we had, the, we had volunteers help them uh, administer, uh, self-administer a survey. And in this survey, we asked many sort of background demographic questions. And one of the questions we asked is to, to have people self-identify their race and ethnicity. And if they were Latino, we also asked them um, our uh, question, are you Mayan? And the reason for that is that uh, the Fruitvale is home to about 15,000 uh, Guatemalan immigrants who are indigenous people. They are uh, Mayan people. Uh, Mayans speak many languages, there's 16 different languages, but the language that is predominantly spoken among the Mayans in, um, in Fruitvale is a language called Mam. And many of these folks are Mam and Spanish speakers. Some are just, ma, uh, and some are uh, speak, on, a few speak only Mam, don't speak Spanish and, and English. And what we found is that when we looked at our positive tests, we found that just as in the mission study, most of the people who tested positive were Latinos and very few non-Latinos tested positive. But within the Latinos, people who self-identified as Mayan were, had a higher positivity rate um, than uh, non-Mayan Latinos. And similarly, we did blood draws on everyone and looked at antibodies. And we found about 4% uh, uh, prior exposure among non-Latinos twice that among Latinos, 8%, and fully 27% of the Mayans who came uh, that weekend of the uh, 150 Mayan people who participated that weekend, they were, um, were uh, had, had shown signs of prior exposure. And similar to what we saw in uh, the mission or what we saw in the state, in, in, in the state California data, what we were, what we found is that uh, 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 people who, uh, who tested positive were more likely to live in households with three to five or six or more people than in a smaller household. And that household size uh, uh, was particularly larger among Mayan Latinos. And reports of food insecurity were larger among Mayan Latinos than among the general Latino population. And poverty was uh, more common among Mayans than among the Latinos. And this was very interesting because this put clearly in focus that um, there is a lot of heterogeneity 
among, even among immigrant Latinos, there is a lot of uh, heterogeneity. And here again, we see a study that I um, had the good fortune to participate in with my colleagues in which we looked at, um, we looked among Latinos, we looked at the certificate data, and we found that closer you get to the, to the orange line, um, there is no excess deaths. We found a little bit of excess deaths among Latinos born in the United States, but much more excess deaths among Latinos born in Mexico or Latinos born in uh, Central America. Again, a pandemic of immigrant Latinos. And in fact, even when we looked at it by occupational sector, even among essential workers, we found uh, large differences in the odds of being um, of being of of, uh, of dying from COVID among immigrant foreign-born Latinos than U.S.-born Latinos. Very um, uh, again uh, underscoring this data. And who are these folks? Well, our colleagues told us those answers um, by looking at occupation. And these are farm workers in the Central Valley, all forms of food workers, factory workers uh, for food, poultry farms outside of uh, in Southern California cooks in restaurants, grocery store workers, delivery uh, people, all of the food distribution, production and distribution network was very high hit. And, and, and it, these are uh, some of those folks. And then finally, uh, people who work in warehouses, janitors or constructions as, uh, as uh, large, um, as important sources of occupational exposure. So what all of this made me reflect is that even among the vulnerable, even among poor people, there is large variations of vulnerability to COVID reflecting very specific life circumstances and how important it is to sort of get the story right, to be nuanced in our approach and to learn as for example, the Alameda Department of Public Health did from some of the work that we all participated in together, how important it is to say, oh, wow, we need to really start thinking about how to reach out to the Mayan community, which is a separate sub-community within, uh, within Latino immigrants in Oakland. I'm gonna turn now to talking really quickly about some of the things I learned about the health, from the health system response and from the public health response. And in particularly, the things that I um, thought about around dealing with the notion of what does it mean to center equity? What is actually fair? And part of that was an opportunity to sort of weigh in on a vaccination strategy in California. And as you all probably recall, California's strategy focused on age and on healthcare workers. So healthcare workers um, were among the first to be vaccinated. I thought that made sense. Um, that we had ongoing exposure. And then um, also age, and on every level, age makes sense. After all, age was the biggest, is and remains the biggest risk factor for death from COVID. So age seems pretty fair, we all get old. But in fact, when you look at the data, vaccinating people by age, uh, quote, by age levels meant that uh, we would protect, if you looked at vaccinating people over 65, uh, first, we would prevent 80% of deaths among whites and Asians in California, but only 65% of deaths among blacks and 59% among Latinx California. And all of a sudden, something that looks unequivocally fair, easy to, 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 to wrap our, our handle around, um, becomes um, much more complex when you think, well, wait, is that fair? Do, should we really be vaccinating an older person who can stay at home 
versus a middle-aged Latino who is, I don't know, a cook in a restaurant or uh, working in, uh, in a factory. And those become, uh, fortunately, um, um, vaccine rollout in California was fairly rapidly, but nonetheless, these are issues that I think we will be thinking about and talking about for a long time. Let me show you where we are with cases and with vaccines. Here is a map of California. The dark colors reflect um, cases, cases per 100,000. And what you can see is how well uh, the Central Valley shows up as well as the Southern part of California. And these are the areas that had the most cases. And here is a map of uh, uh, vaccinations in California. And in fact, the darker colors here reflect higher vaccination rates. And to a certain extent, this map looks like an inverse of the first in that the Central Valley has the is the area that is remains the least vaccinated, around 50% vaccinated, uh, 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 as opposed to the Bay Area or parts of LA or Southern California that are much more uh, vaccinated. So again, the people who are most at risk are not the people who are most protected. And this say, tells us the same thing, that among the fully vaccinated, uh, people are more likely to be vaccinated if they're in the healthiest uh, quartile of community. Um, again, sort of an inverse care law. I also had the, um, the fortune to think about fairness and equity when I um, was part of a group working at UCSF um, health to improve equity among uh, vaccine COVID testing and COVID vaccines. And one of the first things that we needed to grapple with was testing procedures. The way uh, our health system uh, handled it but was similar to the way it was handled in many parts of the country where electronic messages were sent to all patients advising them around how to proceed in order to get a COVID test. And again, that seems fair, right? We're just gonna send the message out to all the patients and tell them how to get a COVID test. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that um, we have a known digital divide. And specifically, we know that patients who are Latinx and patients who are, uh, have limited English proficiency and patients who are older um, are simply not using uh, electronic um, messaging uh, systems. And so those folks really didn't have access to the uh, testing procedures through that uh, mechanism that appeared uh, to be fair and was fair, but didn't center equity and specifically wasn't centering the people who were most at risk of, uh, of being COVID positive. And in fact, we were unable to get good messaging around our testing available on our own website at UCSF until December of last year, fully nine months um, uh, uh, after the pandemic um, had been in place uh, in the city. So one of the things that our uh, committee recommended was uh, phone calls, robocalls uh, to Latinx patients, encouraging testing and explaining how people could get testing in which if you wanted to get tested, you could like, you know, push one and be connected to a person who would help set up the test. And we agreed to do that and we crafted a script and we did all of that. And then what we found is that the group that um, takes care of these things, which is part of the informatics group at the hospital said, you know what, we don't think this is a good idea. We don't think we wanna do this. And when we met with them to try to figure out why, it turns out that they had recently had a long internal debates and had recently been very interested in a good way um, around the internal debates around the use of race in medicine 
and specifically around the use of race in measuring um, uh, kidney function, um, where after much discussion, it was decided um, correctly, in my view, and in the view of many people, um, to take out uh, sort of a, a factor that, uh, that identified whether or not the patient was black. And what the staff had concluded around this is that it is wrong to use race in healthcare, wrong to use race in medicine. And so in fact, it took us several weeks during the height of the uh, December, January surge in order to explain to staff that here we were not using, uh, we were using race or ethnicity as um, a sort of marker of pretest probability of disease, of who was more at risk because of the ways in which the virus traveled along social lines. And this is a somewhat complicated idea. And we, it led to many interesting uh, discussions and finally agreement among everyone involved. So for all of that, this is what I learned. I learned when thinking about the health system responses that one way to think about structural racism is that the easiest way to do something is the way we always do it. In other words, the easiest way to, uh, if we always send out messages to patients via electronic email or my chart, then that is the easiest way to do it. And consequently, that becomes the fastest and, and, um, and um, most obvious way to do something. If we had different ways of centering communication or centering equity, then those may not be the best, uh, the most obvious way to do it. And this is what we call structural racism. In other words, it is, um, in my, uh, it is a structural response that leads us to continue to do things in a particular way. The second thing is that a lot of this is truly confusing. UCSF is made up only of uh, decent people, in my view, who are very committed to doing the right thing. And it's this, a lot of this is truly confusing. When is it okay to use race in clinical care? Wait, it's not okay in here, but it is okay there. Very uh, confusing. And that led me to start thinking about the need for capacity, for growing our own capacity and growing our own competence in health equity work. Um, because at, in a complex system like this, uh, like a complex healthcare system, where there's so many people involved, um, you need to have increased uh, capability at all levels, physicians and staff levels, for thinking through some of these problems. So this other led me then to my next reflection, that, you should, that I should expect resistance to equity based on all three aspects of health system issues. In other words, being told, no, 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 we do it this way because this is the easiest way to do it because that's the way we're used to doing it. I should expect resistance based on confusion and then also to a certain amount based on a certain level of competence around how we get these things done. I'll turn now to um, another area where I learned a lot and that has to do with the power of partnerships. And this is a photo of a food line in the mission um, the food lines where, uh, where I, we partnered uh, on 19th and Alabama at the uh, Latino Task Force Hub, those food lines grew to be 14 blocks long. People would line up at 6.30 for food distribution between 11.30 and noon of a bag of groceries. And we entered into partnership with multiple community-based organizations and really particularly in the non-health sector. In other words, community-based organizations that weren't focus necessarily on health, as well as partnering with our local uh, health department. And some of this came around thinking, well, what can we offer as UCSF physicians? And part of what we could do is harness data for policy. 
And you see that in some of the uh, slides that Dr. Rhodes presented around how they were able to use data to uh, figure out where uh, more intervention uh, was needed and then feed that data back to the health systems and, uh, the, and the Department of Public Health. Well, both San Francisco and Alameda ended up implementing right to recover funds where they took philanthropic funds and said that people who had access to no sick leave would be uh, given minimum wage for two weeks in order to support isolation when they tested positive. And this is a, a very cheap, very necessary way to prevent a further uh, spread. And those uh, funds have been intermittent. Sometimes they flow, usually, often they don't because we run out. But this has been, we, uh, the data that we were able to show around how the infection spreads at work um, uh, was instrumental in this policy. Working with one of my colleagues, Dr. Marlene Martin, we started a, the first community-based contact tracing group against COVID. And this is a group of our promotoras um, who um, started doing um, uh, contact tracing, calling people up uh, to tell them that they had uh, to figure out who, after they tested positive, who they had been in, in, in contact with and, and giving advice to those contacts and also case investigation. And at the same time, building trust with the people that they spoke with by asking about other needs and referral to other services. We work with two mission-based community-based organizations and with the Department of Public Health. And we showed much um, more effective use that people who were contacted by Spanish-speaking uh, promotoras were uh, much more likely to go on to themselves take a positive test and to uh, give other names of other contacts. Another thing we did is, as you know, physicians are the most trusted voice and people wanna talk to their own doctor about whether or not they should get the vaccine. Well, that's nice, unless you don't have a doctor. And uh, more than uh, 25, 30% of people in the US in general don't have a usual source of care. And that number is particularly high among, uh, 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 among immigrants, not just Latinos, but among others. And so what we did is we started a volunteer speakers group with UCSF physicians, giving a standard uh, presentation and answering questions and answer, uh, doing questions and answers with groups. And we particularly uh, chose to partner with community-based groups and with unions like the Service Employees International Union, which um, represents janitors and other uh, low-wage and uh, home health workers and other low-wage workers uh, in California. We have over 60 physicians, 24 of us are African-American or Latinx. We speak 11 languages. We've had over 140 engagements and reached over 70,000 people. And this has been a huge source of uh, pride, I think, um, and a really different way for many of us as physicians to start educating community members, answering their questions uh, uh, very directly. And then similar to some of the things that Dr. Rhodes showed, we, start, we started a youth program called our Student Vaccine Ambassador Program with youth from um, San Francisco State University and from Cal State uh, East Bay. So we took uh, uh, 50 uh, young people from these two institutions, we trained them in vaccine outreach, and then they have been placed in neighborhoods, both in the Fruitvale area and uh, throughout San Francisco, um, working with community-based organizations, going door to door, setting up uh, a small kiosk on the sidewalk or on, uh, near a grocery store to answer people's questions about, about the vaccine and also to assist in navigation, letting people know how they can get it. My last reflection is that context is all. 
when I when we started doing this work um, in um, March of 2021, sorry, of March of 2020, it was under a different president and a very grim uh, outlook for immigrants and for black people and for people of color in general. And since then, we had a change in regime and we've had the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, one of the most important social mobilizations for justice ever in the United States that has really helped change people's uh, perceptions around um, racism and around what needs to be done uh, as an entire society to, um, to um, uh, ameliorate this. And what this uh, is, uh, two, of the, uh, two of the physicians, including one of our own, Dr. Rob Rodriguez, were pers uh, persisting in uh, Biden's uh, health equity group. So what I learned personally is that it's important to be bolder and to be, uh, step out more, uh, uh, do first, ask for permission uh, uh, later, and to learn from people different, uh, be they youth, be they community groups, be they um, community-based organizers working in different sectors. Um, the, uh, our power of partnership is where um, is how we learn together and how we are most effective. I learned how important it was to find my partners right away. And this is just a small smattering of all of the wonderful people at, uh, uh, who have partnered with us in, in doing this work. Um, really, truly uh, extraordinary group of people. And in summary, um, in addition to being uh, a great revealer of disparities, I can certainly talk about this if you want. Uh, COVID-19 has been a great enforcer of disparities, particularly around wealth. And at the same time, it's, 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 it's been an opportunity to reimagine um, our roles as, as physicians, as a, a public health system, as, as a great academic uh, medical center. Where we are now is similar uh, to what Dr. Rhodes was saying, is thinking about uh, con uh, continuing our work on COVID, but also seeing where there are partnerships for other public health challenges and continuing to work to transform the public health workforce in addition to the clinical uh, workforce. And I think that some of that has been uh, quite transformative uh, within UCSF as well. So let me stop here, um, say thank you, and, um, and hope we can get some questions. Well, let me thank you very much, Dr. Fernandez, for that outstanding presentation and for the work that you're doing uh, in the community and at UCSF. So now uh, we have Dr. Rhodes and Dr. Fernandez here to answer your questions. We have one question, um, I think for Dr. Rhodes, starting with Dr. Rhodes, um, which is what an amazing coalition and partnership has this group thought about how this mobilized group can tackle other health issues that are prevalent in the community? Um, absolutely, it's part of um, what we talk about every time COVID goes into a dip. Um, we say don't get don't get uh, complacent in the in the lull. And what can we be doing next? So we talk about COVID becoming a side dish rather than the main course at our pop ups. So there will always be testing and vaccination available because we know people are kind of coming to those decisions at their own pace. Um, but in October, we really started to go hard on um, breast cancer awareness and really promoting getting back to screening and reminding people that cancer doesn't really care about COVID, unfortunately. Um, and we also have uh, been in discussion about starting to do um, diabetes screening and cholesterol screening 
and things which are, you know, their cancer risk reduction um, in terms of dealing with cardiometabolic diseases. So that's absolutely on the agenda. Last fall, we offered flu shots um, at our pop-ups and we also offered HIV testing in partnership with CalPEP. Um, so, you know, the, the concept of Emoja stone soup, whatever you can bring to the table, we welcome uh, those resources at the table. I think the big thing that the African-American communities continue to ask for is mental health uh, support. Um, so what we need are, are the right partners to provide either something on site or incorporate that into our linkages to care. Excellent. And for you, Dr. Fernandez, are lessons learned that could be applied more broadly? I think that the main lesson is, is I think the one that both of us are underscoring, which is the power of these partnerships, just how incredible it is to be doing work that is centered in community partnerships and a community coalitions, community partnerships. And I think that can be applied to many issues, um, including, for example, uh, diabetes, um, including working on some of the ways in which our youth have been so strongly affected, both uh, in terms of mental health, uh, in terms of the rise of obesity, um, and so on. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. A lot of it will only go in one direction or another, depending on community groups' responses and their own interests. And so it will be interesting to see where that works. We are also seeing extraordinary amount of interest in mental health uh, um, work. So, so I, I guess the question then is, what is it that the university can learn, academic medicine? So from your experiences out there with the community, working with the community, learning from the community, how do you bring that back to the academic medicine table and help inform how we do what we're doing and direct our resources, et cetera, at UCSF? I'd like to see, uh, what I would like to see is that we, we, at, at UCSF, we're very fortunate to have physicians with interests and and, and, and a university that supports interest in, in lots of different things. We have physician scientists, we have physicians, uh, clinician uh, uh, educators, we have clinicians who are more interested in bench science, clinicians that are more interested in uh, translational science or population health. What I would like to see is uh, us really develop clinicians interested, physicians uh, uh, interested in public health and physicians who will um, replace us when we're, when we're gone, physicians who are really want to work at that interface between a great academic medical center and the communities uh, that surround it. Uh, in order to bring some of the skills and knowledge of the academic medical center outward to the community without waiting for patients to come to us as individual people, but outward toward community groups and groups of population. And I think that we as a great academic medical center have a lot to offer. And at the same time, I think that ultimately this will seep in. It will uh, uh, slightly um, uh, change our train, the way we train uh, our students, the way we train our residents. And I think that this will, this work can, is possible, particularly if the, if as a university we support the development of these type of physicians, physician whether we, I don't know what to call them, physician public health advocates in the same way that we have fantastic physicians bench scientists. I, Kim, what do you what what do you, do you think that's possible, or how how do you see it? Well, I think it's going to require structural change, right? So I agree that um, 
that that's the missing category of folks. And we talk all the time about how we're going to build a bridge to the community. And what we say in Emoja is you don't need a bridge if there is no gap. And the, the, the filler of the gap is the people working together actually on the ground, as I said, in that space between healthcare and public health. Um, but what has to change is the incentive structure because you can't really, it's hard to get, you have to be very creative about doing that work and getting promoted. Um, and, and most of the folks are, are here to get promoted and, and not to say that they're singular focus, but it's kind of the path that you're on when you are part of an academic institution, you're paying attention to what you need to do to get promoted. And, and that criteria doesn't include taking action. You get promoted really easily and quickly for documenting that there's a problem, pointing out that there are disparities. It's harder to get promoted for actively addressing it. You have to set that up as a study. Um, uh, you know, now we're calling it implementation science, but you know, before we had that terminology, is really just working in the community and and organizing um, and being active and providing service. Um, but there are no real strong categories for for how you advance in that space. And for myself, I I am able to do it because my roles in the institution right now are largely administrative. If I were, you know. Um, clinical and looking to climb the ladder, it, it, it wouldn't be working like that. And so I do see in some ways that I'm making a little bit of a sacrifice almost to prove a point that, you know, I shouldn't be, as Alicia just uh, made reference to, shouldn't be the only person or there shouldn't be, you know, just five of us. There should be a cadre of students who are coming behind us who are getting cross-trained whether that's public health and medicine or that's basic science and disparity. I mean, this is why we have all these divisions is because we're not focused on broadening folks' bandwidth um, because there are other, other, not just being out in the community and being active, not just population science, but there are other types of research that actually contribute to how we understand, you know, the embodiment of, of discrimination and racism or the embodiment of, of social vulnerability and we need people in all sectors to be working in their sector, but thinking about how does your research actually impact or influence and uplift the health of the community? And we don't often think that way. We think more like, okay, what research can I get published in a great journal? I like to say, I used to be about impact factors. Now I'm just about impact. I love that. Thank great you. Line. About impact. I appreciate that. There's one question, it's a long question. It was um, in relationship to the utilization of the of ethnic, ethnicity and race uh, in our public health system. And you alluded to this a little bit, Kim, in your talk when you started talking about uh, the othering and that African-Americans are not um, immigrants. But the question is the perpetual collection or use of ethnic race data in public health to this attendee seems to be doing more harm than good. As it is right now, people often use the word race as if there are many subspecies of human beings when there's only really one human race. How come it's so important? It's so important for European descendants, white people, to differentiate ethnic categories. Um, they say based on skin color. I won't read the rest of it, but why are we still talking about um, race and ethnicity and not just the human race? Can you reflect on that, both of you, first, Dr. Rhodes? Uh, we're still talking about it because, uh, so I agree with the question that uh, the premise of the question is that we're all human beings. And I think that was the point of 
of, of me raising this kind of otherization piece. There's a whole rest of the metaphors that, that go with it, right? Because if Black people were counted as property. That was part of the reason the census was created. And so you didn't count as a full human. My, my point is the reason we keep measuring it is because there's racism, but we're afraid to actually talk about racism. And what the numbers can help us understand is the impact of that discrimination. Um, and I think that that's, that's why it's important to still collect it. Although I totally agree, we shouldn't be collecting it as if people of different colors are of different species. I, I think that on, of course we're all human beings. On the other hand, what this virus has said so clearly is we live, work, and socialize separately. That's, that's why we see the numbers we see. That's why you can go into the mission where it's one house next to another house, next to another house, next to another house, and yet the virus only came and touched the Latino houses, right? So on one level, I'm really sympathetic with an approach that says, guys, you know, can you stop with the race and the boxes? And the, I'm totally sympathetic. On another level, I'm like, uh, no, because the virus went and plucked out. And that, that was really important. That was really important. And that's why I said it made me think so deeply about that. Because I'm also of the, yeah, we're all human school. Uh, but but uh, when you think about the way this virus was transmitted, it showed how completely segregated our lives are. I wanted to make a comment. I saw in the chat um, people saying, if I'm not Black or Latino, can I work? Can I volunteer? Yeah. I want to speak on that. And I, 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 and I want Kim to, to speak on that because we may have different answers. Um, uh, uh, and what, what I want to say is absolutely. Um, um, we need all of us, our communities, as, as, as Dr. Rhodes explained, these are communities with very different histories, very, and, 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 and because of that, uh, progressive thought has evolved differently in these communities and people, uh, and they and may have different responses to those questions. But absolutely, if you are someone listening and you, want, and you live in San Francisco or you live in the East Bay and you want to help where there is lots to do and you can write us care of uh, the Latinx Center of, uh, of Excellence, which is uh, latinx.ucsf.edu or just write me, uh, Amalicia Fernandez at ucsf.edu. And we, we, we will uh, we'll give you places, plenty of places to volunteer. Um, Kim? Yeah, I mean, for um, Emoja Health, we are, the, the term Emoja, I said, refers to unity. It's about the oneness, right? It's about the coming together of people around a singular focus, around a mission or a goal. And um, our, our, our front end people, I would say the majority are African-American, but we have volunteers who are super diverse Um Asian backgrounds. I mean, we end up, we usually have the language capacity that we need on our sites, um, regardless of what the language is. Our point is, and, and we did have to face this because when the governor announced that if you volunteered a vaccine site that you could get a vaccine at a time when vaccines were limited to certain categories, we had a lot of people show up who were they had never worked in the African-American community, really didn't know what our mission was about, but really wanted 
vaccinated. And so how the way we handled that is we dealt with it straight on. We said, you know, have you have you worked in the African-American community before? Like, understand what the mission is. We're going to give you a vaccine, but we expect you to come back and volunteer again. Or we're going to give you a vaccine, but we expect you to do something for the African-American community in the future. And so it's really a question of like, are you on our mission or not on our mission? So if you're on our mission, we would love to have you. If you're not on our mission, then, you know, you could volunteer somewhere else um, because we really are, a, you know, about that effort. doesn't mean we turn people away, but we are on a specific mission to make sure that we do serve um, African-American community as they uh, approach us. Thank you. We have one more uh, time for maybe one more question. It's uh, for Dr. Rhodes and Fernandez both. I'm so honored to have been able to hear about both of your advancements in research, community partnerships, activism, scholarship, the list goes on and on. This is a question for you both. If you could implement any policy tomorrow addressing the intersection of anti-racism and health, what would it be? Either of you can jump in. Go ahead, Kim. Oh, I think you're going first on this. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a great question. That's a good question. I think that's a great question. I don't have an answer to that. What I thought, well, I have an answer to questions around the social determinants of health. I think I would raise the minimum wage, even more than what the minimum wage is here, I would raise it again. Um, I, I, I think, um, uh, I think to, to eliminate at the intersection of racism and health, I think that if I could do anything, for, uh, I don't know, but among my top three things would be to further diversify the medical uh, clinical workforce and the public health workforce. I think that we that in order to, to, to make health care be, be less uh, problematic, uh, we need to change who is doing health care. And, uh, and, and, and I believe that very strongly as I know my colleagues on this call do. Yeah, I would layer, I would layer on top of that. I would either disconnect um, insurance from employment um, because of the disparities in employment uh, that are persistent over time, which means there's you know, no health insurance. Um, and, or I would shift payment structures inside the hospital to actually incentivize equity. So there would be an equity review um, uh, related to some kind of annual reimbursement or a pay for performance type program. And so then you don't really have to worry as much about the individuals because I think it's really the context that is permissive of bad individual behavior um, where individuals may not know that they're necessarily discriminating, but because the system, because the hospital, because the administrators um, income would be tied to delivering equity, they would be enforcing equity through policy and it would trickle down and not allow people to sort of, I mean, people would probably still do what they do around making judgments about how people look, um, but there would be some potential consequences for that. So you might want to open it. Good answer, Kim. I, I want that one too. <laughs> uh, well, I thank you very much. I thank both of you for those outstanding presentations, again, for the work that you're doing, most importantly, the impact that you're having on the most vulnerable population. So we are just so pleased to have had you um, here with us and lending your expertise to this discussion. I really want to thank all of you in the audience for joining us this evening.
our UCSF mini medical school combating systemic racism in healthcare. Today focused on the COVID-19 disparities and their disproportionate impact on African-American and Latinx communities. Again, Dr. Fernandez, Dr. Rhodes, thank you so much for being here. It was outstanding. Thank you all for being here this evening and we'll see you next week. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.